Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. In this series, we celebrate 40 years of the brand Rab and chat with key people behind the scenes. Here is a glimpse of what's coming up. And then there are a whole bunch of other signals you can look at in the snow that will give you an idea of what climates were like in the past. You can build these reconstructions of climate history. I just found that teasing a part of a mystery to be absolutely breathtaking. The thawing of the Arctic Ocean, which is causing the evaporation and then the increased snow, is because of increased temperatures. And these temperatures increases aren't that big. They're about one degree C. And if it's changed the lives of caribou that dramatically, one degree C, I think the lesson is the earth is way more sensitive than we might expect. The outdoor industry, I think, has a responsibility to to clean up its playground. It's the high icy mountains. Uh, it's the ice routes. It, it's Ben Nevis. The decisions that we make do affect the outside world slowly, but in ways we can't tell. In this episode, I get to speak with climber, filmmaker, and climate scientist, Ryan Vachon. Based in Colorado, Ryan shares his love of mixed climbing and how he ended up making films about caribou in the Arctic. Ryan speaks eloquently about what the main barriers are in helping the planet and what we can do as individuals to do our bit. This was an enlightening episode. Yeah, well, great to meet you anyway. So how long have you, so you, are you based in, are you based in Boulder? I'm based in Boulder. I've been here for about, uh, uh, since 99, so 22 years. Right. I mean, I, I've never been to Boulder. It's, I would love to come, but I get the impression that it's a bit of an epicenter of climbing and alpinism, isn't it, in the States? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know of a place that's more epicentric than this. And I mean, with all that it comes with it, like it's amazing, but it's also just everybody you run into is just <laughs> like an incredible climb. Are they, is, it, is it like um, people are just like psyched out of the mind the whole time? No, you know, I think that people are pretty grounded here and like they, okay. they get into the gist of training. And uh, I think there's this really good cohesive group of people who just try hard and they get that, you know, pain and structure pays off. There's like a group of that. And then there are a whole group of people who just really enjoy it. And like, it's not their thing, but it's maybe what brings them sanity. Yeah. There's, there's that. So you get the full... The full spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I live in the Peak District quite close to Sheffield, and I, I, I came to Sheffield really to go to university. And they always joke that, you know, you come to university to study, but then you get obsessed with climbing. And, I mean, if you actually manage to get a degree, it's a kind of a bonus, really. Is it a bit like that in Boulder? There, there must be so many distractions. You know, it was for me. Uh, I don't know if it's everybody, for everybody because there's so, I mean, they, I think I remember hearing somebody call these the Olympic rings of Boulder where you've got climbers, you've got kind of the intellectual, you've got the businesses. I don't know all the rings, but there are several different aspects and they, they overlap. But meanwhile, there are a lot of se- you know, separate efforts as well. It, yeah. For me, I came here to study and the climbing was a really, really nice cherry on top. Excellent. So, I mean, talking of like overlapping rings, obviously we've, we've got a lot to talk about. So maybe we'll start with climbing. I mean, be, were you a, 
a, a climber before you became a scientist or was it the other way around or how did that work? Oh, it's the chicken or the egg thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you go way back in time to when maybe we could figure out the answer to this. Um, I think I always liked nature more than climbing. Climbing just became part of my, when I was in high school, it became part of my thing to do. But I, I grew up in a place where climbing wasn't a big deal. Um, so I, I used my mom's clothesline to go to go climbing. And I'm not going to color myself as intelligent, but I had a good time. Yeah, where was that? Not where, where were you? Where were you raised in the states? I grew up north of Boston, so on the East Coast. Um, where... I've been. I've been to that place. You know, that was like um, probably about five years ago, and a good friend of mine from university, Nick Lewis, a sort of solid Welshman. He, he's based up there now. Married married a, an American, and we were climbing on. Yeah, Cathedral Ledge, that area. And it was one of those, it, it was in the fall. And so I thought we were going rock climbing, but halfway up, it started to snow and suddenly this trickle of water turned to sort of ice. And so we had rock shoes on, but it felt like it was quite an adventurous, you know, it was just at that turning point of the season. Cathedral Ledge is where I cut my teeth. And yeah, New, New Hampshire is kind of a weird one where you can look at the forecast and get a general idea, but then sometimes things just go sideways. And uh, I think it's gorgeous there when you, you avoid the bugs in the spring. So you, you started climbing there. Um, well, I, yeah, I started climbing. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, which is not quite, you know, it's a little bit south of New Hampshire and uh, along the coast, uh, a fishing town. And um, there was some granite around there, but not very tall, just, you know, 25 meters of climbing. And that was about it. And um, so I grew up there and um, with a couple of buddies of mine, we just would get into trouble. And then I went to university in, um, in Boston and started to spread my wings a little bit. But it wasn't until after college that I really got into climbing. And then I've, I've had a relationship with climbing that's come and gone, meaning I just follow the juju. And for a while, I just let it go. And uh, I, I re-engaged it in 2012. And the science then, you talked about that love of nature being brought up in a, on a coastal town. Tell us a little bit about that and how it led to becoming a scientist. You know, I grew up with a dad who always would ask me questions about what's going on in the world around me. Um, that was one thing. And then the other thing was, I just liked being in nature. I liked sitting in it and experiencing it. I think as a kid, maybe I actually meditated. I don't know if I do it now, but when I was a kid, I just would sit around and just hear the birds and watch the leaves and be impressed. Um, and then I, I was an engineer in undergrad and I discovered I wasn't close enough to the earth again. And I went to geology and um, taught geology in high school afterwards for a little while. And then, uh, I had to go back and I had to dive deep. And you get you get the idea of the diving deep. You, you've done quite a bit of studying yourself. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, more, I would say, like on the people anthropology side. But yeah, no, absolutely. And I I, I mean, I totally get that nature bit. I mean, um, you know, I, I didn't climb or do what you would say traditional outdoors as a kid, but I was I was brought up on the edge of a village where there was a lot of farmland all around and I, I just loved roaming around in those woods and the fields 
as a kid. And so when I discovered climbing, it was that combination for me of, you know, everything that climbing is, but doing it in going to all these incredible places, you know, to start with around Britain, the Lake District, the mountains of Wales, and that just blew me away. So can I, can I try my own history of Andy Cave? Oh, you can try if you want, yeah. So you were in a coal mining town. Well, that, you yeah, I mean, to... yeah, absolutely. So if we, if we, if we want to talk about COP26, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm no word of a lie, but, you know, thinking about, we were talking about carbon in the atmosphere. I mean, I think I write about it in my first book, but I was brought up in a small town, a coal mining town, um, most of the activity takes place underground, obviously, but then there's all the spoil. There's associated industries with it that are turning coal into coke, all the byproducts, the petrochemicals, the smoke. And like every winter, I had like um, a bad chest, you know, phlegmy. And, and, and it was only when I moved away from the mining town when I was 18 where that bad chest went away. I just, I just thought everybody in the world had chests like that. It was a pretty filthy place. I mean, there was a lot of pride and, you know, people liked working in that industry. But, I mean, I can remember going for my interview at the coal mine and it's no exaggeration to say that walking back up the road, my feet left imprints in the ground and that was just coal dust on the pavement. I mean, then you had steel in Sheffield, which is another big industry with all the smoke there. So it was, I guess the heavy industries were declining in the 1980s, but but they were still around, you know, um, yeah. And was there like a strike or something in 85 or 1986 yeah. that then uh, unleashed you into climbing? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's uh, I'm, I'm probably one of the few miners that, that benefited from that, you know, industrial mm. action in a, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different kind of uh, story veering into I guess, I guess politics and all kinds of things. But um, it wasn't just myself though. There were other people who were maybe in the steel industry also experiencing shortages of work and stuff like that. And so, um, and that, but, but in a sense, it, it allowed me to uh, yeah, spend more time in nature. I mean, down a coal mine is nature, but it's just a different view of nature. Um, you know, fossils and things like that 3,000 feet underground, but it wasn't, for me personally, it wasn't the nature that I wanted. I had a, an uncle that absolutely loved it and lots of friends that, you know, it, it's, it's the cultural, the, the camaraderie. Um, but for me, when I discovered climbing, there was no way back really, because, you know, I, I just much preferred being in high open places with big skies than being down a dark tunnel. I mean, I've never been attracted by caving for example i mean i admire it and i like the photos of it but i'm pretty claustrophobic i mean even in a bivy bag sometimes i get panic attacks i don't know about you yeah you know i can especially when you seal them up but wow so they, your family gave you the long wrong last name <laughs> oh yeah man i know yeah absolutely lots of jokes around that but science i mean Tell us a little bit about your, maybe your PhD research. You, so you came from engineering into more climate science and you obviously spent time in far-flung places. Talk us a little bit about that. You know, just, just right before that, you were talking about, you know, exploring underground and coal and um, the natural resources bit. 
you know, I think the whole Earth cycle, the cycles are really fascinating. So even the creation of coal is really, really interesting. And to, to think that coal is life from hundreds of millions of years ago, I, I find that super uh, adventurous. It's just when humans start interacting with it, are we finding that balance that I sometimes struggle with? But, um, you know, it was that sort of thing. I wanted to become part of a conversation around how humans can make wise decisions with the world around us. How can we treat it in a way that's going to be sustainable? And I don't know if I could have put it into those words back, you know, 20 some odd years ago, but yeah. now I think that I got into studying climate to be able to put information to the feelings that I have about being really, really addicted to the outside, um, but also wanting to respect it and understand how we can have a relationship with it. Um, my PhD studies were about going to the high ice caps of the world, maybe in the Andes or the Himalaya, even there's Greenland. I didn't go to Greenland during my, my graduate work, but each layer of snow that builds up an ice cap holds secrets of the climate from which it was formed. So if you have 10,000 years of snow that built up, and you look at that bottom layer, let's say 9,700 years ago, and you might see dust in it. You could then estimate that, oh, you know, it was windy and dry at that time. And then there are a whole bunch of other signals you can look at in the snow that will give you an idea of what climates were like in the past. You can build these reconstructions of climate history, and then you can hypothesize about the cause of why these changes happened. Was it the sun? Was it an asteroid? Was it humans? Um, and it's, I just found that teasing a part of a mystery to be absolutely breathtaking. Um, and, and, yeah, it sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah, and and you're, I guess one of the things you you're trying to work out is what the the temperatures were like, and and concentrations of carbon in the atmosphere. Is that right? I mean, I'm a layman here. This is not my. Oh yeah. Video, but. Well, you know, I, I think my one bit was reconstructing temperature, um, and then a whole bunch of other scientists can get in there and look for causation. What's what's the cause of these temperature changes? And the whole idea of carbon um, and other green, so you have carbon dioxide and you have other greenhouse gases like methane um, that affect climate. Even water vapor affects climate the same way as greenhouse, it's a greenhouse gas. Um, and those conversations I've been able to get strung into after my studies, uh, as I started teaching some of this stuff, um, I got to work with really amazing other people who are involved in answering those questions. What's causing modern changes? The big questions. Whew. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're, getting outside is a perfect excuse to kind of shut down and just be. I don't know if just be is the word, but to let go of those things. Yeah, because yeah, if you're thinking about those big questions every minute of every day, it's going to weigh you down, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of oozes out of your ears later. So how did you get into filming? So was it stills or was it more movie stuff straight away? Yeah, good question. I started off, I don't know how old I was, but I, with a film camera, a still film camera. And I think it was during my grad school that I started tinkering with more with video. And I'd be filming my friend skiing or climbing with this crap camera. And at the end of the season, we'd put all the reels together into something, put really heavy music to it, you know, devil's horns out and just get together, drink beer and watch 
the season from before. And that was great. And I remember having this conversation with a fellow geologist. And I said, I want us to take a step up in the camera. And we had this conversation about, is this a big step that I want to take in my life? Because the camera that I wanted was a documentary style camera. And I went for it. He convinced me. He's like, try it because you'll regret it if you don't. And I went on an expedition in science that year, it was 2003. And we came back to two really, really cool discoveries that turned into pretty neat papers, research papers. Um, and then PBS, a lot like BBC, reached out to me, said, we heard you had a camera on your expedition. Can we use your footage? And I think I, I was to the moon. Absolutely, you can use my footage, even though it was something like 25 hours of footage. I, I couldn't stop pressing record. Um, they used it. And then I think Discovery Channel got jealous and Nat Geo did and History Channel. And I think 12 different networks reached out to me and said, we want to use your footage in the stories we're trying to tell. And so I think I took it personally. I, I thought, wow, that, they liked my footage, but in truth, it was the science. But that thing propelled me into wanting to capture more science stories. Um, and about four years later, I, I became a professional. Brilliant. Well, two things I'd like. I've not actually seen either of these films, but the films that I, I want to watch now, now I found out about them. One, I know you made a film about caribou mm -hmm. in the Arctic. And mm -hmm. I'm familiar with, you know, some of Barry Lopez's writings and such like, and I've spent a little bit of time up there in the north, not enough up in the kind of St. Elias Mountains. Yep. But um, what what's that film about? And, and what, what do we learn from it? would you say? You know, the, the whole experience of telling the story of the survival of caribou in Northern Alaska, that was, I would say, darn poetic. I'm not a poetic guy, but the, I, the, the beginning scientific question that we wanted to explain with, with film was what's happening to the health of caribou in the Arctic? Because between, I think, 2010 and 2013, um, the one, the central Arctic herd of caribou lost about, I don't know, a quarter of its number. And then between 2013 and 2016, it lost another quarter of its number. So we saw this massive decline in numbers. So we decided to study them. And the big question that we had was, what are the decisions caribou are making on their migratory path? They'd start in kind of central Alaska and move to the north and back throughout the year and like well, what's controlling the decisions that they make as they go over you know the really frigid brooks range um and so we went about studying the pathway that caribou took and then looking at vegetation for nutritional levels or the snow types to see if caribou were going where the nutrition's high or were they avoiding certain types of snow and uh what ended up happening was that caribou were essentially how did this go um Caribou like powdery snow. And so they would stay on the north side of the Brooks Range when they normally would go to the south because more and more powdery snow has been forming on the north side of the Brooks Range in the past years. And the only cause for the, this increased powder is the thawing of the Arctic Ocean, or the Arctic Ocean, the Beaufort Sea. So with the ice disappearing off the sea, there's more evaporation north of Alaska, and that then propels snow 
in the northern parts of Alaska. So the thawing of the ice caused more snow, the caribou stayed up north, and they started to freeze. And that was th this elegant story that we told over about four years. Wow. What, what sort of time frame were you, were you out there filming this for? I went up there about five different times, and uh, it was anywhere from winter, spring, summer, and fall. Um, yeah. And anything, and anything we can learn from, from caribou? Yeah, you know, it's a great, a great question. Um, I would think that the thing we can learn is that what happen, what's happening to the caribou is related to our own decisions that we're making outside of the Arctic. Um, the thawing of the Arctic Ocean, which is causing the evaporation and then the increased snow, is because of increased temperatures. And these temperatures increases aren't that big. They're about one degree C. And if it's changed the lives of caribou that dramatically, one degree C, I think the lesson is the earth is way more sensitive than we might expect. And I like to think of the, the earth's natural system a little bit like the human's body. Like if we turn up the temperature in our room by one degree, you know, can we feel it? Likely no. But if we turn up the temperature in our body by one degree, you know, we stay home from school. Um, so I, I think the earth system is extremely sensitive. Yeah, it's, it's small changes. Being around, you know, nature as an ally, and we we need to get bring back some balance. Is that right? I mean, that's. I don't know. If, I mean, the Earth will go on. I believe that we are just visitors here, and how long we persist is up to us. But yeah, I think the the Earth is going to be spinning around the sun for a long time, uh, and other life will will happen. But I just like to think if we want to have healthy world for our next generations. It's it's healthy to be thinking in other spaces than we might be. Uh, yeah, I think someone's... yeah, we're we're yeah, we're just stewards. We're, we're we're trying to do our best for the for the future in a in a way. So that brings me on to a a couple of things more specifically. Yeah. And one would be um, you know what what can we do as individuals? So that's one question, you know, in our own humble way. And you know that we and I mean, as a climber, I've spent a lot of time traveling around the world, going climbing and being a mountain guide and all that. So, so there's that part of it. And then the other bit that we maybe touch on is, is, is brands and outdoor brands and, and, and how important it is for them to, to take things, you know, be more responsible. So shall we, shall we start with individuals first? Yeah, let's uncork this one. This one's a tough one. Um, no pressure. I think for, what's, the, what's that? No pressure. <laughs> yeah, right. I got the answer. I should be at COP26. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the answer starts with your training. When you've, when you've tried to go out and you know, kick some butt on these mountains, yeah. you don't expect yourself to be really good at first. And or the, it could be a metaphor for climbing a mountain. You have to take a small step first. Yep. And uh, I think that whether you think of it as training or climbing a mountain, um, I think a lot of us can feel badly that we can't solve the problem at the very end or reach the top of the mountain, but we can take these small steps. And then eventually these small steps can amount to an immense amount of change or the summit. So I think if we're conscientious about something in the beginning, and maybe that idea is to close the door when it's cold out or close your windows when it's cold out or 
turn off your lights before you go to bed, or maybe celebrate the holidays at home as opposed to flying overseas or whatever it might be. These small steps, I think if we can forgive ourselves for not taking huge steps and focus on the little steps, we'll find out how satisfying it is. And I've talked to um, Jim at Rahab here um, a couple of times about this. The metaphor that I like to use is like, we're, we are just snowflakes. Humans are snowflakes, but we can make an avalanche. And so if we all decide to make small decisions together, big things can happen, but we just got to be accepting of the slow start. Well said. And so with, with, with brands, I mean, what kind of things, you know, well, first of all, it's, I think it's a given that it's important for brands, outdoor brands to be taking this seriously, uh, acting responsibly and, what do you think about RAB and the things that RAB are doing? They seem to be moving in the right direction. No, I, I think that's a really great question um, about the, the outdoor industry, I think, has a responsibility to, to clean up its playground, to take care of its playground. And for a company like RAB, it's the high icy mountains. Uh, it's the ice routes. It, it's Ben Nevis. Um, it's Mount Washington, New Hampshire. Um, where the decisions that we make do affect the, the outside world slowly, but in ways we can't tell. Like the earth system is really complicated. So if you give it a little nudge, sometimes it doesn't resist at all, or sometimes it completely resists. Um, and then sometimes it collapses. So I think if we can step forward as organizations, companies who wanna have a sustainable future, we have to be aware that natural systems behave very differently and that our decisions that we're making do affect it. And maybe we don't know exactly how, but it will. And businesses produce an immense amount of, we'll just say greenhouse gases, but a lot of other things that can be detrimental to a na healthy natural systems. And so if you look at what Rab's doing, um, I heard that the RAB distribution offices take the plastic bags off of the clothing that they're sending out so that, that that responsibility is not left on the people who open their boxes to see what clothing they get. Instead, RAB holds the plastic bags and recycles it. And they recycle close to like a thousand pounds or 700 pounds of plastic bags. And for me to think about them taking that small step, I'm totally impressed. Um, and also the, their goal of being net zero, um, so zero carbon, uh, including offsets by 2030. I think they've got their eye on the, pro the prize. And I also love talking to them about the idea that it's incremental. We can't expect to be perfect right out of the gates. And it seems like they're, they have their eye on the prize, but they also are taking strategic steps every year. Yeah, um, and I, I love it. I love seeing that. And so I think that somewhere in, in there, the solution lies in um, connecting the single bottom line for a lot of companies being money with the single bottom line for our sustainability, which could be climate, matching them together. The other film I wanted to touch on a little bit was was a little bit, you know, we've, we've just, well, like we're coming out of or we're in the midst of the, the, the pandemic. And I know you've made a, a movie about that. I've not seen it yet. A pandemic story. What was the motivation behind that? And tell us a bit about that. 
Am I allowed to swear on this? Because yeah, of course. Oh, holy shit. It was so intense getting started with this uh, documentary. We went into lockdown in 2020 and we, we being me and a, a production group, there's a small production group um, and a, a, a collaborator named Dan. We were like, something is going down now and we have to capture this unprecedented time. And so we started interviewing people all around the planet on Zoom. And at that time, Zoom was kind of a new name in a lot of people's houses. Um, but soon it became a household name that everybody was connected to. But we were interviewing people mostly over Zoom at first because we didn't even know how close we could get to our neighbors. Um, and uh, so that was the that was the beginning of telling the story. We would be inquiring about how people were doing, how they were problem solving, and how they were keeping themselves happy. Um, and in the end of this story about we, we covered the first six months, so pretty much just during quarantine here in the United States. Um, we realized that people were trying to find buoyancy on their own in a new, in a new normal. And uh, that was so cool how we found that most people were naturally buoyant in a really, really difficult situation. Um, and a lot of people were using the changing environment because there were you know, there were fewer people driving and fewer flights. Um, people use that as kind of this lightning rod for how they want to be moving forward, which might be they could stay at home a little bit more. They don't have to travel. They don't have to go to the office as much. And with that, maybe there could be positive impacts on the environment. I think that's a really good point, isn't it? Because we, where we live, we, we, we're a bit of a place where planes circle from Manchester Airport above us over the over a big kind of uh, moor here. Um, and it was amazing just not having those flights circling first time. And, and we really noticed it as, as, it, as it's come back. It's not right up to peak intensity. Uh, and just slowing down, like generally, working virtually, traveling less, commuting, so on and so forth. So I think it is a, it's, a, it's an interesting time where people are reflecting. And that brings me to that, Thing of yeah what what little things can we do as climbers anything tangible i mean somebody said to me oh, well actually we're chatting with debbie reed from rab who had heads up this the corporate social responsibility there and she was saying just the really simple thing was around you know like if you go off climbing for a weekend you know two or three times a month why not go fewer times but extend it so you go and have a three-day weekend just little simple things like that to sort of try and reduce the amount of sort of zooming around. So your question that you're asking me, sorry, I was actually listening to you and I kind of lost track of my own thoughts. Yeah, so just thinking of like, yeah, tangible things as like outdoor people that we can, that we can do to be more mindful of our, you know, kind of footprint. Well, you know, working with Rab, has been incredible in that they've been supporting me outside of just my climbing adventures. Um, I'm working on a documentary now about the idea of how can climbers contribute to the, the discussion of changing climate. And, and so Climbers in Climate has been this film where I believe that climbers have this incredible perspective on a changing world that nobody else has. Who else goes to these peaks that are changing so rapidly. So their testimony alone and their 
reaction to these to seeing these changes is a really important conversation to share with other people. Um, so I think that in some ways is to celebrate what we do. And so when we're out there and we're noticing these differences, I say share it. Um, I also think that there are small things that we can do um, that maybe most most people would think of as more common, like we don't have to have a new jacket every year. RAB, for example, has these new facilities in place where we can have our gear fixed and cleaned, send it back, and it's almost like a car. Immense amounts of water and, well, water is used and carbon dioxide is released in the making of these things. So if we hold on to something for an extra year, that's a little bit of a, a little impact removed from our footstep. And um, well, so, and I, I don't know if you, you're probably a little bit like me, but you get really attached to pieces of clothing as well. So you, you, you know, in some ways you, you have your shirt that you put on when you're bouldering, you have your, your fleece and um, sometimes you want to, you know, want to hold on to that piece. And so if you can get it repaired, I'm, I'm all for that really. Yeah, it's badass to hold on to it, to walk around with a tear marks. Those are little tattoos of our adventures. Fred, you know, Fred Becky style, get the, uh, get the gaffer tape on there when you're on the field and then, and then get wrapped to repair it when you get home, I guess. That's what I'm thinking. And I, but I think that that stretches on too. And like, again, that's our first small step. And if you can learn that that's fulfilling and that if everybody were to do something similar, we'd have some impact. I think also how we fly, how we get to a place and we could consider having an adventure more locally. Um, my wife and I recently have been really focusing on climbing and adventuring in Colorado. And at first we were exploring well beyond that. Now it's like, oh my gosh, just our, outside our door is incredible. So, you know, I think we've been really lucky with the realizations we've had about how fortunate we are just outside our door. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what's on your doorstep, I think you're pretty much up there, to be fair. You know yeah, yeah, that's true. You're right. That's a very good point. Um, and with that in mind, I guess I'm suggesting that if we can think about the, the, the smaller steps that we can take. Sure. My, my, my steps are really small because when you when you when, you, um, when you're not thinking about films and, and, and climate and, and science and various other things, I know you, you, you have a big passion for mixed climbing. Is that right? I do. Yeah, I, I think there's a little bit of wizardry involved with keeping your stuff together and solving pro solving problems, little puzzles on how to climb steep steep walls and cliffs. And um, yeah, that's my thing. Great. And you 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 know, have you have you been over to Ben Nevis anytime? No, no. I haven't been to Norway, Iceland, or Ben Nevis yet. And um those are two or three areas that, whew, those are epicenters for places to explore. Sure. Yeah. Well, listen, Ryan, it's been brilliant to chat. I really appreciate your time and really look forward to seeing the, seeing the film that you're working on. Is there a, can you give us a tentative date when that might be available for viewing? You know, I, I think we're aiming for the spring of 2023. Uh, to have this thing buttoned up. But right now, I think we're just trying to determine how big it's going to be. Is it going to be the 40-minute one or is it going to go the full boat of 100? Right. Okay. Well, listen, 
take care. Have a great winter. I hope you get some fun routes in. Uh, I'm not jealous at all about you living in Boulder, but one day I will visit. Well, you're more than welcome to. We have a spare room for you right over there. That's very kind. I, I would imagine there's some decent microbreweries over there as well. Is that right? Yeah, you can get into trouble here. <laughs> Hear what you're saying. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe, hit like, or leave comments. That would be brilliant. See you next time.